to this, the 14th Chuckle Duster Podcast, and our Halloween special. I am your ghost, I mean host, for this horrifying ordeal infestation. You see, I have forced, I mean encouraged, some dusters to write or improvise their own terrifyingly torturous tales, which I strongly encourage you to listen to, or else you will diametrically oppose my wishes. So let's begin with my favorite duster, Michal Benai. Lichluchit in the big city. They say this story never really happened. But I know it's true. It's about a girl named Lichluchit who lived in a tiny village right smack in the middle of the east. And one day she decided to try and see the world from a different angle and move to the great big city. She packed a bag and started her journey. It wasn't an easy one. But finally, she arrived in the big city. As soon as she landed and her feet touched the ground, she took a deep breath, drawing the air in. For years, she had imagined how the air in the big city would smell of opportunities, liberty, modernization, and freedom. But it only smelled of deep, deep fried chicken. The stench was horrible, and soon she found out it stayed with her everywhere she went. There was no hiding from it. The streets, the pubs, the shops, they all smelled the same. Finally, in despair, she ran to find shelter underground. But to her horror, she found so, so many people there, all eating, chewing, sniffing, crunchy, fried chicken bones. So this must be the source to the smell. Stuck under the ground with millions of people chewing around her, Lichluchit suddenly felt how the dreadful stench is slowly becoming tempting. Could it be? Is she craving crunchy skin and chewy bones? As soon as she got back to the surface level, Lichluchit ran into the closest shop and with a few coins she brought from back home, she bought herself a bucket full of chicken. She ate the whole thing so fast, feeling pleasure and disgust all at once. When finishing, she suddenly realized what she had just eaten. Looking puzzled at what was left at the bottom of the bucket, she tried connecting the remains of the bones, desperately trying to make a familiar shape out of them. This can't be chicken, she cried. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. She ran with horror up the stairs into her new home. She opened the door, finding a second door. She opened the second door to find a short corridor, ending with another door. She opened it and found three more doors. What's with all the doors in this big city? She cried in anguish. I just need the toilet so I can wash my hands and face from the stench. At last, she found the right door and went through. To her astonishment, she found not one, 
But two taps in the sink, two taps. What is this for, she wondered. She tried the right hand side, freezing. The left hand boiling. How do you wash your face like this? She started splashing water from both directions onto her face. Oh, the agony. Half her face was about to crack and fall off like ice and the other was in hell. She ran out of the flat, not noticing the bus coming from the wrong side of the street. Sorry, love, shouted the driver while driving away. She lay on the cold asphalt, not able to move any part of her body. Well, she thought, at least I know the medical expenses are covered by the NHS. The end. Next, if you can stomach more fear, is my favorite duster, James Hamer Morton's tale. Enjoy. If you can. The Demon Podcast. This, sadly, is a true story. But for the sake of privacy, I have changed the names of those involved. Our protagonist is a man we shall call Noel Mellinger. A happy kind of fellow who regularly hosted a weekly comedy podcast called Comedy Punch. His fans loved him. His wife loved him. Even his pets loved him. But it wasn't enough. He wasn't happy with the podcasts. He felt his voice was annoying and couldn't help but feel like he was missing a crucial ingredient to be able to really refine his podcastian technique. Jealousy started to eke into his every word and he knew it was just a matter of time before his anger exploded into a tirade of expletives that even the hardiest of editors couldn't bleep out. Noel looked at himself in the mirror. What am I doing with my life? If I can't make people laugh in a podcast, then what am I good for? Certainly not cooking or writing stories or sex, he thought. Desperate. He scoured the internet for any ideas or concepts that he could use to improve his own hopeless cause. Then he saw it, a podcast with over a million subscribers purporting to give tips and advice as to how to be a better caster. His eyes widened. So many positive reviews, so many people telling others to listen in. Noel's heart was beating like a drummer in a metal band. Double bass pedal. You know the type I'm talking about. The second he clicked subscribe and the white smartphone light enveloped his face, he couldn't have known what he had done. He would go for a run, listen to the podcast and clear his mind, hoping to glean some insight into how to improve his podcast's performance like this. This testament to success, smiling at him. He didn't know whether to be in awe or just envious. The download stepped forward. 57%, 58, 59. His phone rang in his hand. The sudden noise caused him to drop it, smashing on the floor below him. F***ing f***ing f***, he called. Hundreds of pounds worth of technology ruined in the blink of an eye. Of course he wasn't able to see the screen anymore. 
He wasn't able to scroll down, past the five-star reviews. Reviews that undoubtedly helped a podcast succeed, in that if you rate a podcast five stars on iTunes, it actually helps boost them in the ratings, to be seen by more people, making it more popular, and offering a free way for fans to thank the creators of a podcast they like. The kind of action that could probably be taken even while listening to a podcast, without even having to stop it playing, though, of course, if it suited the user, rating it afterwards would be just as good an option. Underneath the five-star reviews were many more that were much darker, much more foreboding, and served as warnings. Noel could not see them now. Instead, he willed his phone to ring again, to prove the phone was still working. Nothing. He decided he would go for a run. The clouds loomed ominously grey, sapping the colour from his surroundings and darkening the park he once knew so well. Hey Siri, he announced, or OK Google, depending on what brand of phone he was using. Play my newest podcast. Playing latest podcast. The voice from the machine spoke back. A cacophony of noise filled his ears as he ripped away the headphones. What is that? How can this be popular? He wondered. Thunder. He knew he'd have to get home quickly or risk being caught in a downpour. Suddenly, he heard something coming from the headphones lying on the floor. A voice. Maybe the start was a failed download. Maybe this is what it was all about. Welcome to the podcast. You have 24 hours in which to make somebody else subscribe, or you will die. Noel laughed to himself at first. What a ridiculous concept. Who would believe in something so crazy? Then he realized enough people to get this podcast a million subscribers. He ran into a friend of his, another comedy puncher, an Australian named Tim Mellor. Tim, Tim, I've had this idea. To get us a million subscribers, we just have to tell people that they have to make people subscribe to this or they will die. Who would believe that, mate? Replied Tim. Not everybody, but enough people. Seriously, there's a podcast where they do just that. I'll send you the link when I'm home. All right, mate, I'll check it out later. I'll best get in before the weather hits. Struth! Noel got back home, kissed his wife. You know, a casual kiss, not like full tongue. It's not that kind of story. The very next day, he called another comedy puncher. Games Hamer Morton. Nicknamed for his mastery of the improv games comedy puncher had become so famous for. Games! Games! Have you spoken to Tim? The Australian in this story? Games replied. Yes, I can't reach him. I ran into him about, oh, I don't know, 24 hours ago and told him about my ideas for the podcast. He told me about that last night. I listened to the podcast this morning. It's ridiculous, though. Surely no one would fall for... Noel heard a doorbell muffled through Games's phone. Hold on, there's someone at the door. Games announced. Noel heard some quiet talking. It sounded serious. He wished he was there. Waiting on news was tense. Too tense. 
No. Are you still there? Yeah. What is it? It's Tim. He's dead. Holy sh! You don't think it's the podcast? Then how come I'm still alive? Asked Noel. Because you did what it asked. You made someone else subscribe. I killed him. I killed Tim? What am I gonna do? We'll just say he moved back to Australia and used pre-recorded footage we already had of him to make it look like he's sending us stuff from another continent. Oh my god, games. You've listened to it now too. I've gotta make someone else subscribe. But you've got no friends. Who are you gonna ask? There's only one option. And that, dear listeners, is where the story ends. For I'm afraid you have been tricked into listening to this podcast. You see, what you may not have noticed is that this story was really about Chuckle Duster. Comedy Punch is really Chuckle Duster. Noel Mellinger is really Joel Mellinger. Tim Mellor is really Wim Mellor. And Games Hamer Morton is really Lauren Shotton. To avoid being killed, they had to make you listen. And now, the curse is on you. You must now make others listen to the Chuckle Duster podcast. Otherwise, you will die within a hundred years. The timescale was different in the story. So please, tweet out, review us, social media us, or else the curse of the demon podcast will claim your life. <laughs> Welcome back, if indeed you're still alive. Dare you listen on to my favorite duster, Sarah Griffin, whom you may remember as God from the livestream show, entitled The Conversation. Like all true horror, this tale begins on a Wednesday. You've just finished work and are leaving the building and... As you step into the quickly fading light of an early autumnal evening, you realise it's gotten considerably colder since this morning, and your jacket is nowhere near sufficient. You pull your collar up, hunching down into the familiar warmth of your own body, your chin dropping into your chest and your nose filled with the unmistakable scent of you, which reminds you that you really should have had this coat clean before you put it in the closet at the end of last season, but who actually does that? Who has that kind of time? Or money. It begins to drizzle in that thin, disconsolate way that means that the rain gods can't really be bothered today, but can't call in sick because they are anthropomorphic characterizations of natural phenomena. And you realize, halfway to the station, that it's been nearly an hour since the last time that you checked to make sure that your phone still worked. You step into the nearest alcove, an overhang, really, outside a pub, but not a nice one with outdoor heaters, just one that has been architecturally thoughtful enough to provide an occasional windbreak. You take your phone out of your pocket, tapping in the entry code you chose because it was the only historical date you could remember without transposing the digits, 
and begin to scroll through your apps one by one in the sequence you know will give the first one you check time to update by the time you finish checking the last one, which means that you can get a good 20 minutes of time stood here out of the elements before making the next leg of the long journey home. 20 minutes to breathe and be still. 20 minutes on your own. But no, today is not a good day for breathing because out of the grey London evening a figure is coming towards you. You've clocked it before it gets too close, the unmistakable shape of another human being moving with intent, moving in that direct and focused way that means they mean to interact with whatever it is they encounter when they arrive at their destination. And as you watch this figure carefully making sure not to move your eyes from your screen, not to give any physical indication that you're aware of the existence of any other human beings ever in the history of Earth, let alone this specific one, this one making their way inexorably towards you, coming towards you out of the rain, coming towards your warm little hollow of your own heat and your own smell as you watch this figure closing the last few steps between it and your safe haven, you know what is about to happen. You know, with chest-crushing, bowel-obstructing certainty, that this person will come to you, will look at you, at your face, bent over its own little screen, happy in its own little world, will look at that face and will want to converse. And you're right figure arrives. A man, somewhere between 20 and 65, with hair of a definite color, and probably having some sort of a face. He's got clothes on, or at least you suppose that he does, because you don't notice him being conspicuously naked. Not that you could notice anything, apart from those eyes. Those eyes that leapt in the moment you were stupid enough to look up, that moment where the physical proximity of another animal that is the same kind of animal that you are forced you to make the decision to run like hell or go for the face, that moment where you had decided to run but first had to look up from your perfectly functional phone to check where you should put your foot for the first leaping bound towards freedom, in that moment he caught your eye and pinned you beneath the weight of social expectation, drowned you in perfunctory pleasantry, gasping for air your world is taken up by his eyes and just before he speaks you hope you pray that he might say something racist that he might start trying to convert you to whatever branch of whatever church it is he belongs to or tell you about the illuminati oh lackadaisical thunder gods if only he would say something that excused you from ever having to listen to anything else that came out of his mouth but he doesn't He opens that ravening maw of interpersonal demands and says, Hello. The word echoes in the space between you, bouncing off first your face, then his, then yours, until the sheer number of rebounding greetings awakens you to the fact that you have not responded. That silence has grown, slowly, damply, like a fungus between you time has come that you must speak, must respond in some way, or it's going to be just super weird. So you do it. You do the thing that you know you must never do. You unclench 
your jaw just enough. Part your lips just enough. Lift your tongue just that fraction you must in order to whisper some breath of a response. But even as you do, you feel it begin and you know you were a fool to ever dream that a creature like you could do something as simple as converse. Because as your mouth opens, what creeps between your lips is not hi or how are you or even off asshole I'm busy. What slides along your tongue's legs? Eight legs hard chitinous and shining dully in the last of the sunset light. Her body follows them, suspended between the now upright appendages, perching on the teeth of your lower jaw, hanging pendulous and heavy and chittering defiance at the eyes of the man with the face and his greeting and his eyes, those piercing eyes, those eyes that forced you to do this in the first place, widen with horrified recognition of the beast between your teeth. You wish that this would be the end, but it can't be. Now that it's begun, there is no stopping it, and your hands jerk and twitch, your own limbs betraying you, moving and beyond your will to stop them. They undo the button on the jeans you were to work that day, your fingers dropping to unfasten your zipper tooth by agonizing tooth as you finally let your trousers fall around your ankles, squat down and shit out 20 urban foxes, all of them wearing Britain first t-shirts except for Larry, who always has to be different. He's wearing secondhand Ed Hardy because he can't buy new because he's a freaking fox. And they all begin to yap and howl and scream in unison and as the pack voice rises it clarifies and blends with the screeching of the unholy arthropod that still sits on your tongue and the sound is that of your mother saying she understands that you're busy but it really is so nice to hear from you when you call and she just wishes you could do it more often and as your eyebrows slowly begin to melt and slide down the sides of your cheeks you raise the tentacle that once was your left hand to wipe a hairy little tear from the end of your nose and wish people understood how difficult it can be sometimes to talk to strangers. Die! A tribes of such power can have unforeseen consequences, which is why we terrify you with my favorite duster, Lauren Shotton's ghoulish telling. So the Egyptians have your earth gods and your sun gods and your basically your normal gods. So it all derives from Ra. Ra is basically like a bird, like ah! And he is the whole entire god. He has the sun on his head. And Osiris is one of the descendants of Ra, who overrules the whole of Egypt. And Set was his brother. Now, Set is the brother, and he basically is the, is the god of the underworld. So he's the dog. But he basically has his staff, and he rules the underworld. Osiris and Set had a massive dispute going on. I think, like, Osiris, like, stole some of, like, Seth's toys when they were younger or something. I don't know. It was just something that he just could not let go. It's like, for instance, when I used to lock my little brother in the bathroom 
and he just even now he's like I'm going in the bathroom don't even like don't even try and like look me in the bathroom man don't even like try and turn the light out what happened is Setlin decided to kill Osiris this is sibling rivalry gone horrendously wrong I mean we all have issues we all flick food at our siblings and we all sometimes go you know what you need a good whack around the head and you need to respect your elders but I mean honestly I mean I don't even know if he was the eldest I reckon Osiris probably was because Osiris was pretty cool about all this and and Seth was just not he was just like no so in his beagle ways he sits out and he plots it all he does like a smart plan he's like how much time is this gonna need is this available do I have all the tools and all the elders are like all the other gods are like look mate come on like, this has been going on for like years like get over it you know go and like get horrendously drunk and cry in a corner with a bottle of Jack Daniels or vodka or something but no he's not having any of it because he's a beagle dog what is he what is he he's like a oh he's a jackal that's what he is is it a jackal 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 you know he's a beagle he's, he's a beagley jackally thing and and Osiris is sitting there with Isis who's his beautiful wife and so what he does is he lures him out and Osiris is like oh that seems to be my brother set you know and he and he and he drugs him yeah like total hypno man and he locks him in a papyrus bamboo leaf type coffin and then he just he just sends him down the nile as you do and everybody else is upset you know i mean like like new who's the, the sky god is just looking down at me like Wow, 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 okay, okay. And they're all sitting at the dinner table going, Diddy beloved, you know, we are gathered here today to say goodbye to our to our dear friend and our brother. And Seth's like, <laughs> I will I will hold it all. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, like Osiris is just like sitting at the table. And he's like, So what's what? What how did you get here? And Osiris is like, Oh, oh I've just I've just always been here. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, it was really, really freaky. And Seth's like, whoa, man. He, like, does that, you know. Obviously, he doesn't say, oh, man, because it's an Egyptian. So he would probably say something quite Egyptian. And um, and he's just like, how did he do it? I swear I killed him. I don't know about you, but that's pretty freaky, man. Because if anybody did that to me, like, I would hyperventilate and knock myself out and end up somewhere in, like, South Africa. Do you know what I mean? Like, and Egypt and South Africa are, like, a long while away. Hold a minute. Egypt is in South Africa, Lauren. Oh, damn it. No, it's not. It's in North Africa. Hmm. Anyway, it's a lot bigger than us just going down the Thames from Richmond to Twickenham. Um, so, yeah, so basically Set is now, like, freaking the f- out right now. He's, like, goes back to his smart plan. And he's like, no, I didn't make another one. See, I'm really glad that you guys are still listening um, because this is where it gets really gruesome. So what Set does is he turns around and he he becomes like almost like Edward Scissorhands. Do you know what I mean? With all these scissors. And once again, he lures Osiris out. And Osiris is like, look, mate, I, I, I'm sorry I locked you in the bathroom all those years ago. Let's just get over it, okay? And Set's all like going all like, you know, Scarface on him. Like he cuts him and he kills him and he beheads him and he cuts him up into 14 pieces what number is this podcast he cuts him up into 14 pieces and he then puts him down the nile all the body parts scatter all the way down to different parts of egypt africa south africa the next part of the world antarctica and he wipes his hands and says right i'm done i will now rule egypt however unbeknown to him isis has been watching this you know isis osiris's beautiful wife 
Now, women, men, have a sneaky suspicion when men are up to something that they shouldn't be up to. And Isis has somehow envisioned this all go on. And she spends the next few years of her life, so she ends up stitching everything back together, offering it to the gods and saying, you know, mummify him, so they mummify him, and then he miraculously comes back to life again. Hercules, you know, saved Megara and then punched Hades in the face and Hades' face all like scrumpled up. I've only seen the Disney version. And he defied the gods, but this is unreal. And Set is so pissed at this point. He's like taking the smart plan and crumpling it up and he's like, no! And, and that's pretty much the end of that. I mean, well, I don't know. All the gods kind of sit him down and they're like, dude, this has like taken 80 years. Can we just get over this? And he just can't let it go. I mean, I mean, he even like, he even comes on to like Horus, which is Osiris and Isis' son that then is conceived after all of this. And he, um, he tries to like contaminate him and stuff with himself. You know what? He's a pretty troubled soul, really. I mean, I wish I could go up to set and give him a pat on the head, give him a, you know, like a tennis ball to play with and be like, good beagle, you're fine. You know, just, I'll turn the light on for you next time. I mean, maybe this is a lesson for all of us, you know, this Halloween. Don't lock your younger brothers in the bathroom. Because you just, you just never know what's going to happen. Finally, we put this podcast to bed and suffocate it with a pillow with my favourite duster, Joel Mellinger's assault on your very sanity. Parking ticket of death. I hope you're sitting uncomfortably because I am going to tell you a tale that will shake you to your very core. Imagine a beautiful suburb, the kind of suburb you'd love to live in. White picket fences, manicured gardens, and tree-lined avenues with autumn leaves falling in the sunset. Yes, this is an evening in late October. Not the 28th of October, or the 29th of October, or the 30th of October. No, this is the 31st of October. (laughs) But what's this? Here comes a weary traveller, trundling along in a shiny red Nissan Micra. The car is being driven by our hapless hero, Jack, a lowly worker in an elastic band factory, who at this moment in time is filled with trepidation. For the evening ahead is fraught with jeopardy as Jack has been invited to a soiree at his boss's house. It wasn't that Jack didn't like his boss, it's just that he couldn't stand networking events. No, Jack was the kind of person who liked to leave his work at the office. Sure, making elastic bands was an honest profession, but it was Friday night for heaven's sake. He'd much rather be at the cinema or bowling with his friend Clive. Anyway, Jack's modest car passes BMWs, 
Jaguars and Mercedes Benzes as he looks for somewhere to park. But alas, this is a residential parking zone and it's 7.30 in the evening and all the residents are home. But no, up there in the distance, he sees it. A huge parking space that could hold a tank. For some reason, nobody else had parked there. Jack pulls up and parks with ease. But when he gets out, he notices next to this parking space and this space alone, there is a sign written in an old gothic font in characters the color of blood. Parking in this bay is for residents only on Monday to Friday between the hours of 8am and 6pm. However, on Tuesday mornings, non-residents may park between the hours of 1pm and 3pm, but for no longer than 20 minutes. Non-residents with a disabled badge may park at all times unless their car is German, in which case parking on Thursdays is prohibited. All parking after 4pm on Wednesday afternoons is limited to members of the Women's Institute. Parking is strictly forbidden on match days unless proof can be provided of knowledge of the offside rule. There is to be no loading at all times unless it is a Sunday, in which case this may be carried out at six-minute intervals. For all other parking, please purchase a ticket from the meter. Jack scratches his head. These are the most confusing car parking restrictions he has ever encountered. To be on the safe side, he buys a ticket anyway, places it on his dashboard, and then makes his way on foot to the house of his boss. Three hours later, he emerges from the soiree. He'd been stuck discussing the energetic potential of a fully stretched elastic band with two nerds from the research department and only managed to escape by pretending to have to go and care for his uncle's sick rabbit. However, when he arrives back at his parked Nissan Micra, it is Jack who now feels sick. For stuck to his windscreen is a yellow plastic wallet the kind which immediately gives you a sinking feeling, as you know you have been issued with a parking ticket. For fuck's sake, says Jack. You absolutely cannot win with these people. They're animals. Jack takes out the ticket from its sticky-backed pochette and with horror reads the penalty notice printed upon it. Your vehicle is in contravention of the Hellsborough Council parking restrictions. The penalty for this contravention is your soul. However, a reduced penalty of half your soul will be applied if payment is received within the next 14 days. My soul? says Jack in despair. I can't give them that. I need it. I had better pay it immediately so I can at least keep half of it. Jack turns the parking ticket over in his now shaking hands. For online payments, it says, please visit www. 
hell.gov.uk forward slash parking penalties or for telephone payments call 0845 666 6667 Jack dials the number and is met with an automated service. Thank you for calling Hell Borough Council. For bin disposal, press 1. For demonic contracts, press 2. To pay a parking penalty with your soul, press 3. For all other inquiries, press 4. Jack presses 3 and is made to endure the music of Christabur for what seems like an eternity until finally somebody answers. Parking services, Diabolus speaking, how may I help? I'd like to pay for my parking ticket, please. Ah, yes, you do realize payment is your sock? Yes, I know that, replies Jack, slightly irritatedly. It's written on the ticket. Besides which, I'm paying within 14 days, so I only owe you half. Very well, replies the hellish bureaucrat. Payment has been received. That's it, says Jack. Oh, yes, says Diabolus. You only have to pledge your soul to us for it to be in our permanent possession. Goodbye. And with that, the phone line goes dead. Phew, says Jack to himself. Well, at least I have the other half of my soul. On the contrary, comes a horrible voice from behind. A voice recognizable to Jack. A voice he knows only too well. He turns slowly as tears start to cascade down his face. He knows exactly who is standing there, but he can't bring himself to look at him. Until, finally, resignation sweeps over his body like a police blanket over a freshly deceased corpse. And Jack looks up. At his boss from the Elastic Band Factory. The other half of your soul, says his boss, belongs to me. <laughs> We do hope you've enjoyed being terrified beyond your very being. And please do keep sending in your suggestions for conversation topics, questions, and anything else you can think of using the hashtag CDPodcast, quoth the raven. Oh. I never introduced myself, did I? Well, maybe that's because I'm someone dead. <laughs> someone dead, played by James Hayman Morton.